Hello and welcome to the SLB podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. In episode 11, we'll be trying to reconstruct the SLB origin story, and we'll be speaking to founding members, including myself, Neil McMillan, Alan Mucci, George Chilton, and Irena Almathan. And during this episode, we'll also be hearing from current SLB members Simon Courtney, Matthew Evans, and our current secretary, James Venner. At the moment at SLB, we're all very sad, having lost a friend and supporter of the co-op, Michael H. Long, a hugely important figure in the field of task-based language teaching, as well as in second language acquisition research more generally, and instructed second language acquisition research. Michael sadly passed away in February, and we'll we'll miss him a lot. He was a contributor to our TBLT course over on our learn.slb.coop platform. He was also a big supporter of co-ops in general, and for that reason, he might have been interested in this episode. He'd written extensively about the Mondragon uh, cooperative system in the Basque country, for example. So, well, we'll miss you a lot, Mike. Uh, In the next episode, we'll be dedicated to some memories of Michael Long from people who knew him well, uh, including people who worked with him or were students under his tutelage. Before we hand over to the SLB founding members, we'll just uh, hear a short clip from the Zero Squared podcast, which is the podcast by the Zero Books publisher, from Richard D. Wolfe, the American economist. I think this is as good an explanation as you'll get of uh, what a cooperative is and uh, why we need cooperatives. The way to change the system is to go to the root. And for us, the root is the enterprise, the workplace, the factory, the office, the store, where we produce the goods and services that are our economy. And the problem there, we argue, is clear. It is undemocratic. A very small group of people in every office, every factory, every store, the owner, if it's a corporation, the board of directors, usually 10 or 15 people, they make all the decisions, what to produce, what technology to use, where to carry out the production, and what to do with whatever profits the enterprise generates. That tiny people does that for themselves, which should surprise nobody. The mass of us, the employees, the vast majority, have to live with the consequences of the decisions we are excluded from making. And the people making the decisions are not accountable to us. The workers have nothing to say about who the boss is. It it goes the other way. The boss hires and fires you. You don't hire and fire the boss. And so our argument is simple. Let's democratize the enterprise. In a country that celebrates itself as being, quote unquote, democratic, it is bizarre that from the beginning, 
the enterprise, the workplace has been excluded. When you cross the threshold into your job, you give up your democratic rights. You allow other people to tell you what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. And at the end of the day, you leave behind what you helped to produce and you go home to rest and recuperate so you can do it all again tomorrow. And for us, this non-democratic workplace is the problem and to democratize it is the solution. Well, maybe we, we start by introducing ourselves. <laughs> George, who are you? I don't know anymore, Neil. I don't know. Um, I'm George Chilton. I'm a founding member of the cooperative. Uh, I'm, I'm currently also the co-owner and co-founder of a, a content marketing agency called Hubbub Labs. Uh, <coughs> I used to be a, used to be a teacher. Cheeky, this is cheeky who I am. Punt. This is cheeky who I am. The only, it's the only thing I can talk about anymore because I don't do anything else. Define also, yourself uh, by your work, do you, normally? I'm also a, a, a daddy to a, a 16-month-old little boy called Santiago um, and, a, and a husband, I suppose. Um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how else to describe myself. Yeah, I'm a writer. A At the time teacher. of um, forming the co-op, what were you doing? Well, at the time of forming the co-op, I was in between changing jobs, actually, um, or I was changing jobs. I, I had been a teacher since um, 2007, and we, we started talking about the co-op in 2013. If I'm if I'm correct, yeah, I think so. Um, I just changed jobs, and I was um, I was an editorial assistant for Wall Street English. And prior to that, you'd been teaching in the same. I've been teaching uh, in uh, language school that, that we were. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's really hard to tease these details out of me, isn't it? Um, I was working <laughs> as a teacher. <laughs> I was working as a teacher at Oxford House, um, and 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 a number of other places as well. Um, Mostly as an academy teacher, not a freelance teacher. We were all horse to the English language teaching industry. <laughs> Certainly <point>. were. <laughs> Alan, who are you now and what were you then? <laughs> <laughs> I am currently and have been for a while Alan Ritchie, um, also Barcelona-based. Um, and I'm a sort of teacher, teacher trainer, translator, materials writer, I suppose, dad. Yeah, and you were also working some hours at least at uh, Oxford. Well, we all, I guess that was the common thread, wasn't it? That's where I met you, Neil, when uh, I was told to shadow you, which was quite hard because <laughs> your shadow is a lot bigger than mine in many it's ways. It's a very big shadow. <laughs> it's really hard. Uh, metaphorically and, and literally. And we bonded over a shared love of beer. Yeah. Beards or beer? Did you say? Well, I don't know. Beer, beer, I think. We all enjoyed relaxing mm. over a beer. Mm. Who are you, Neil? I, it's a good question. Who do you think you are? I think I am. What's that thing? What's that quotation about the madman is not the guy who thinks he's the king. He's the king who believes he's the king. That's the true side of madness. Are you, so you're the president I'm of the president <laughs> of the co-op who also believes he's the president of the co-op, so possibly <laughs> off my rocker. Um, at the time... I 
was similar to you. I uh, think you guys had been in Barcelona longer than I had. I'd been in Barcelona for maybe three years. Um, and I had been a teacher before, and I, I was a teacher in Barcelona, teaching English, mainly in private academies. My memories of forming SLB are a bit hazy, so maybe we can do that. We can just try to like recount what happened. I, I remember you sidled up to me in the in the staff room and whispered <laughs> gently in my ear, "George, I've got an idea. Meet me, Alan, and Irene in a coffee shop, and I'll tell you all about it." That's that's more or less my my recollection. Was it a coffee shop? Because Irene remembers a pub. Um, I, I think it's one of those sort of pub cafe type places that are just all it's over. All the same here, isn't it? Yeah. I definitely think it was over a beer rather than a coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I, I was sort of imagining a cafe, but yeah, we we were drinking alcohol. Definitely. I think. Now, no, it we'll, may be we'll, giving me too much credit to say uh, that I had the idea. Maybe that's how I put it to you at the time, but. I've got a funny feeling it was Alan or I don't know. I think it was a combination. I think it, it was my dad's idea <laughs> in my world anyway, because yeah. I was, I was kind of, I didn't know, I didn't know George at that point. Um, but I was sort of bitching to my parents about having been kind of messed about by, uh, uh, an agency, you know, it wasn't, um, one of the companies we've already mentioned and they shall remain nameless. But, you know, I was kind of sort of, talking about how they often take a large sort of slice of the pie and pay us not very well, but don't, well, didn't very often add value to what we were doing and more often than not kind of took it away. I think I was complaining about this at the point of having been sent out to the industrial zone on the outskirts of Barcelona to do an interview with someone who wasn't there because he'd already been told that the meeting was cancelled, but I hadn't been told and I was sort of fuming about sweating my way out to Hospitalet and back for no reason. And, but, uh, but you're over it dad. now. I am over it. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't sound like I, it. <laughs> have you ever walked along Gran Via in like 34 degree heat for no reason? It's, it, I have it's, actually. Uh, it's something Horrible. to got fused into my, uh, my mm. being. But anyway, so I was bitching about it to my dad and he said, oh, well, you know, these people are supposed to add value to what you're doing. And if they don't, why don't you, you should set up a teacher's cooperative or something. Um, and so... I think I said that to Neil and he said, I've been thinking exactly the same thing. And then he said, yeah, I want this to now rings George. a bell. Because I remember, I remember you guys uh, complaining a lot. There was something in the air uh, in our <laughs> mutual dissatisfaction <laughs> at the time. Um, and I don't know because I haven't, I didn't really know very much about co-ops at the time. I had a vague idea. I think Catalonia is a place which supports uh cooperatives. I had an inkling of that. I'd read uh, George Orwell's um, homage to Catalonia where he arrives in Barcelona and it's full of like anarchist co-ops and all that so I don't know if that was part of it as well but certainly the idea of what could we do to um, get out of this uh, feeling of being exploited. <laughs> Let's see if we can exploit ourselves <laughs> somehow or other <laughs> um, vaguely but yes and yeah, so we all seem to be kind of like-minded. Irene uh, also liked the idea. And I seem to remember as well, there was a big impetus in that we, uh, or through Irene's work, we got offered a chance to do in-company classes somewhere that we could only um, do as, well, autonomous, as freelancers or as a company. But mm. I think before that, we were just not sure about what, 
kind of co-op we had to be and we had to do some digging didn't we to find out what the options were and yeah and we were co- very co-ops of workers and we were very lucky to get some good advice early on from angel who was an ex-student of mine who happened to have a past life as a a lawyer for a bunch of cooperatives in the Madrid region, I think, and he recommended that we um, call, you know, think big, a bit bigger than just teachers and, and set up a language services cooperative. And I think he was also the one that maybe recommended a services cooperative model, maybe, or we or we, we asked him what the difference was between that and something else. Yeah, I remember Irene and I went to, uh, we got a consultation from a co-op based in El Prado de Obregat. His name escapes me, but maybe Irene will remember. And they did a, I think it was a kind of, I don't know if we paid 50 euros or a free, it was a free consultation and they were a services co-op. It's quite interesting, isn't it? As, as my understanding goes, that the service services co-op is actually designed for farmers and it's about sharing things like combine harvesters. And, and and that sort of thing. Strangely, this has become my kind of uh, sales pitch to new to potential new members. I say we're just like a bunch of farmers. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a combine harvester. You've got a threshing machine. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, yeah, it helps visualize because yeah. So, just to clarify to listeners who might not know very much, Catalonia, there's a wide variety of co-op types. Um, that you can become everything from cooperatives of consumption where you maybe get together with your neighbors to buy things in bulk that you need, like maybe fruit and vegetables in bulk and you save money is that like that. The, is that the le- loophole that the cannabis associations use in Barcelona? <laughs> I think it's that there's a kind of the... If you only um, have certain a certain number of plants, they they're not going to prosecute you. So if a group of people each have nominally a certain number of plants, the whole club's got a huge number of plants, but part of it belongs to each member. I think that's how that works. Can I just clarify that SLB doesn't have any marijuana plants? (laughs) (laughs) As a a a cooperative. I don't know about you two. We're not a cooperative of... I think it sort of uh, speaks to the fact that in Catalonia there are kind of quite a lot of maybe alternative models of doing things that are potentially allow right. for new ways of doing business. That's that's what we were going for, wasn't it? Exactly. So there's co-ops of consumption, which are normally, I don't think, to buy marijuana, but to buy fruit and veg. There are co-ops of education, which are kind of associations of uh, teachers and parents. You might run a school uh, cooperatively. It's something we considered, but I think in the end, we didn't want to be another school competing with other schools in the city. Um, co-op of workers, which is the traditional kind, I guess, where each worker uh, has a contract and, and co-owns the business. But then the model that seemed to work for us was this co-op of services, which is really a cooperative of freelancers who share resources, services, help each other and to improve their lot. And that seemed to work for us. It meant we didn't have to, you know, have a building or a school. You know, we could just have a desk or an office somewhere. And um, it enabled us to get that first client. But <laughs> one other memory I have is that we had all this paperwork to hand in, and Irene and I had had booked a holiday somewhere, and uh, all this stuff. And I remember you was it you and Christina, Alan? Is that possible that you got lumped with all this? I think there was quite paperwork. a funny moment where we we'd done everything, almost everything, but um, we'd even we'd opened the bank account, we'd put the three thousand euros in it. 
And then when we actually tried to use the bank account, the bank contacted us and said, what are you doing? You can't pay money into it. <laughs> oh, okay. Of course not. <laughs> and, and we need to pay for something. Oh, no, you can't take money out of it. At which point I felt like saying, do you do you understand the, what most people want a bank account for? And, it, and after sort of weeks, it seemed, of this like going around in circles and dealing with a call center in Madrid and speaking to the none too helpful people behind the desk, uh, my then girlfriend, who was very pushy on the phone, let's say, very skilled in that department, um, called up the office and said, I have a meeting with the vice president in 15 minutes. If I don't have these forms on my desk, there's going to be hell to pay. They didn't know that the vice president was her boyfriend and was just sitting on the other side of the room, not in any particular hurry. But she got the form sent to her email from two separate people within her um, her time frame, which was quite amazing because we hadn't been able to get anything done for weeks uh, <laughs> up to that point. And yeah. I think from then on, it was just a little form that we had to sign or something. And uh, yeah, there may have been a bit of running around to offices getting things stamped as well. But. Yeah. So just to clarify, in Catalonia, you have to, what do you have to do? You have to have 3,000 euros. Which we got together between the four three of us. Three people minimum, is it? Three minimum, three people. Need four, yeah. yeah. And you have to create uh, statutes, which, if I remember correctly, it was this co-op that gave us the consultation that said, um, because there was a template <laughs> that the generally that provided of of co-op statutes, and they just said, "Don't change a word." No, maybe that, it was Angel. That was Angel. Angel said, "Think like a funcionario." He said, if you guys write your own wonderful um, estatutes, a civil servant here is going to go, ooh, ooh, that's, that's not what I'm used to. That's, that's not, you know. And yeah. so he recommended that we just take the off-the-shelf ones and then we could, um, if we needed to, modify them later, which he reckoned would be a lot easier um, than doing it um, the other way around. So it was that kind of advice, really, his, his having worked with cooperatives as a lawyer, I mean, you know, that that probably saved us months and months and months of, of, of uh, limbo. So, you know, it was really useful. Yeah, yeah because I think on reflection, I think we did actually manage to get the whole thing um, made official relatively We did, didn't quickly. we? And as you say, we had this pressure of the client in the background. So it was, it was at the time, it was all quite... Um, yeah, I think maybe <laughs> even started teaching there, uh, but we couldn't issue a, fact, a factura, an invoice until... Uh, yeah, it was all quite until sort of... Uh, and if you remember, at this time as well, I was also moving countries. So you're doing the paperwork and you need my signature for things. Oh, yeah. I literally moved to Colombia. That's right. Yeah. So I remember once I received something by email that I then had to FedEx back to Barcelona uh, the next day. Yeah. Well, you've got to send this back within three days. Yeah, I'm literally in South there, America. <laughs> well, then and we had to become freelancers officially. Um uh, George, I think being in Colombia was maybe a little less. Yeah, I, I uh, didn't. Strife yeah. involved in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah George, it. George very cleverly managed to basically dodge most of the <laughs> hard work at the beginning. I, I'm good at that. I'm good <laughs> well, at I don't know actually. George did a hell of a lot on the website. <laughs> of um, course he did. Of course. Well, let's just. What, what do you think? Was, apart from all this papaleo, this paperwork stuff, what, what were the biggest challenges at the beginning? I think one of them for me was just understanding. What it was we were becoming, you know, trying to yeah, get a handle exactly. on and what we could that. do, what we couldn't do, how yeah. we could do it. I thought, yeah. I mean, I thought it was an sort of an exciting, exciting process because everybody had their own idea of what it was, what it could be. Um, but as you're a cooperative, that vision has to sort of amalgamate or like 
um, or congeal <laughs> and and, be, <laughs> and become something. And I thought that was interesting. Cohere, so, cohere, cohere, yes. I prefer congeal. <laughs> congeal like the fat on the, on the frying pan and then you've got something to look at and hold. Um, well, and you it, can it, it, congeal, I'm going to coalesce. All right, you coalesce around those ideas. But I'm going to coagulate. This is why it's difficult. We all have our own like perspectives. On, this on, is it. But yeah. they all begin with co. So they co-op. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's what I found was fascinating about it is that everybody had their own ideas and then like, you bring it to the table and as you add new members in the future and then, it, then, then things really start to take off. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was always keen on sort of writing and creating and, and editorial and that sort of thing. So that's why I wanted to take on the website projects and that was the easiest thing for me to do from re- remotely. Um, so that's why I did that rather than all the exciting bureaucracy that you guys took on. I was going to say, don't you think to some degree we never really quite worked out what we were going to be? We just sort of started and then because of the kind of clients that came our way or people that joined and we suddenly realized that there was a bit of a need for advice in our community or kind of a bit of support here and there, even internationally. You know? I mean, Neil would know more about that through what was sort of going on on Twitter. But I feel like we've mm. kind of become what to some degree people needed, but without necessarily knowing what that was when we started. I think some of it was our own needs at the beginning, right? How do we become freelancers, for example, and what's the yeah. process to go through and and how to do a proper invoice and keep keep you know your expenses and do your proper declarations. Finding out, for example, that we could exempt ourselves from the kind of quarterly declarations was a huge step forward because suddenly we realised that maybe um, as a, an organisation we could help each other do our taxes without having to you know, everyone having to employ a, an accountant. But yeah, I agree. There, was, there wasn't a clear picture at the beginning and I think some of the early members as well had quite sometimes contradictory ideas of what the co-op was or what it should or shouldn't be doing. And that was that was difficult. I think that was one of the biggest challenges for me. Mm, so so the, the, like uh, the lack of clarity when some people came on were expecting one thing, but it was actually something else and, and they didn't stick around for that reason. A few or maybe they expected it to be a kind of magical employment agency that was going to generate work for them. Without, and we were expecting, I think at the beginning, certainly um, quite a lot of effort from the, from the people to help us exactly. get going. And that wasn't always forthcoming or it was forthcoming, but not well directed or, you know, I'm not blaming those people. I'm no, no, saying no. no it was, uh, that was tough at the beginning. I think that's something that's improved a hell of a lot in terms of more or less everyone pulling in the same direction we had the we had the time bank if you remember at the beginning with uh well you you implemented the time bank and that was something that was interesting yeah but it didn't work (laughs) well i think it worked on one level i mean it worked in you know the hours were recognized they might never have got paid or you might you know but i mean people knew who was putting in the time when and on what project and I think you know to at least it was because I mean there was a hell of a lot of voluntary work and you know if nothing else I think it helped to recognize that work um, you know. yeah it had its place it didn't it didn't last but it doesn't mean it, it didn't well work, we were interested in this idea of the bank of time weren't we and we were wondering if we could even because there is this bank of time in Catalonia or something isn't there we were wondering if we might be able to kind of somehow integrate with a, a system that didn't necessarily require 
money and stuff but in the end I think we've decided that we'd all rather have cash than <laughs> Well there were a lot of ideas uh, floating around from the community I suppose the bank of time there were these and there still are I think these kind of community currency type things um, to encourage sort of um, people helping each other out in the community and I do remember another co-op that was far more radical than we'll, we'll ever be probably is it the uh, Cooperativa Integral de Catalunya, and I think we got some advice from them as well. And um, isn't that the one where the founder had to disappear or something like that? But basically, their whole objective was to help people work with but avoiding certain fiscal responsibilities. I mean, they'd they'd found a loophole, hadn't they? By not they they weren't for profit; they were a non a non profit organization. Therefore, they'd found some loophole whereby they could kind of avoid paying certain taxes or something. Is that a fair enough sort of summary of yeah, it? Somewhere. Which we're not doing, should anyone, should the tax no. be listening. We, <laughs> we do pay all of our taxes and uh, we are not one of these billing cooperatives that people occasionally inquire about. Is that worth going into? <laughs> well, yeah, maybe just to explain that there are, uh, because being a freelancer in Spain is uh, has quite a lot of responsibilities, fiscally speaking, you have to pay quite a big chunk of money every every month to Social Security, whether or not you are earning or, or billing that much. And uh, there are co-ops, which again, there are quite a lot of these legal grey areas. We've already mentioned a couple of them. And these co-ops have sprung up that allow people to kind of invoice for occasional work without having to pay their social security quota. So quite a lot of people got the impression that that's what we were trying to do. Whereas in fact, we were trying to help people become legitimately freelance, legitimately keep their accounts, um, invoice. Um, but save some money and share some, share some expertise. Exactly. Yeah, do so with mutual support, with resources. With uh, Yeah, I think a good example of that mutual support um, if if I may, was was one of the members who who went on maternity leave, and obviously she gets support from the government when she goes on maternity leave as an autonomer, but wasn't able to teach, so she thought she was going to lose her classes. So cooperative members um, were able to take over her classes, and 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 uh, when she came back off maternity leave, she could just pick up where she left off. That's one of the support things. That we, one of the things we were able to do. Yeah, but that's that's what I was kind of referring to before when I meant that we didn't set out to to, to offer. No, that, but no. We suddenly realised that as freelancers, there are these kind of, especially as a lot of us were, people were starting families and and lots there have been lots of co-op babies, haven't there? So it's sort of many. You know, it sort of it, it made us aware of a need in our community that didn't you know that didn't exist before. We weren't aware, and we were able to actually fill it. Um, yeah, which was yeah, a really nice yeah. feeling. Exactly. that It shows that there's so much power in the community that you don't realize is there. So if you do have this, this need, like you have to leave your class for, for three months or whatever, somebody can take over from you. Um, or if, you know, um, you, yeah. you, you need like teaching resources and you've got a huge teaching materials bank there, which I think you champion, Neil. Uh, there's just so many different things that the, the co-op provided. And you don't know the needs until... You know, you, you hear people's problems. You realize, oh, I've got that issue as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's such a big. Th- I think that's a really big thing. And I think that's what what it means to sort of evolve as new members come on and new needs and and things sure. come up. And the social aspect as well, because we it became clear that people actually quite appreciated getting together and having 
you know, lunches every now and again, or you know, um, kind of that kind of unofficial, non even, not even teaching related support of just you know being an expat or being, you know, uh, yes, not having a staff room really, but having the the group, and that's evolved. I think. I mean, even during COVID, we've had a fairly healthy community online. People have been able to kind of support each other. We've had the occasional online drinks and things. So that's that's continued and I think that's been important <laughs> for mental health if not for nothing else. What are the other achievements? I think that's a good example of an achievement. I mean, I think the uh, everyone benefited uh, from the maternity leave uh, yeah. thing, the person involved, but of course other people got work out of it. Mm-hmm. Myself um, included. Too, so win-win. What, what other things would you regard as the kind of achievements i think i think the 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 ability to approach larger organizations because as a as a school a school can easily go to a to a business and offer a pitch services and and win a contract there's an autonomy you can you can maybe win a class but you're very unlikely to take on a big company because you don't have the the colleagues to support you but as the cooperative we go as an organization and then then i know that that's just something that i think was a big benefit to us and and something that other people bring in as well so for example some writing work that not everybody can that that somebody can't take on themselves and and can spread it among the the team or a a class i think we've had a few of those sort of bigger contracts come through and i think it's kind of yeah sorry just like saying um that kind of thing though like when people we've had moments where one member might have lost some work or their hours have been down and everyone else will kind of put any leads their way for private classes or you know we've been able to kind of as the years go on offer members more and more like well-paid work and pay people to do training and stuff so i think it's sort of that's another Mm -hmm. aspect to it that's been satisfying I, we're probably even not allowed to talk about the case, but there was the legal thing where a, a client, you know about this, when the client cancelled the class after uh, a couple oh, of yeah. cancelled the class. Yeah. Well, it was a kind of David and Goliath type situation, wasn't it? Because, I mean, they're one of the biggest media groups in the world and just cancelled the contract with no warning. And I think if it had just been me on my own, I never would have um, probably had the budget or, or, or felt I could afford, you know, to get a, a lawyer that the co-op did contract a lawyer and we ended up getting four times as much back as we paid the lawyer and and so the co-op made a bit of a profit and i had a bit of a safety net so yeah that was another great example of how i think the co-op probably got taken a bit more seriously than i would have been if i had just been operating as you know alan ritchie right and maybe because we were think, trying to think as a co-op, I, don't, I think we haven't always uh, done this well. But when we try to think um, as a proper organisation, we you know we we do things like like create contracts and other things that were a help in that case too. The fact that we tried to sign something with um, with that client to guarantee, and also because they basically told you it was nothing to do with the quality of the service; it was to do with some other decision to change providers. Yeah, it was um, a purely internal decision just to have two offices in line with the same provider or something. But anyway. So, yeah, yeah it's a good example of strength in numbers, but also, I guess, just trying to think like uh, like uh, an organization rather than as an individual and trying to like put in guarantees. So uh, that's a good example too. I think, I for me, the biggest achievement is just the fact we've, grown to a pretty stable I mean I always had a target I don't know why it was a bit arbitrary that if we got up to about 20 members 
um, consistent members, then that would be a big achievement. And we did that. I think for the last couple of years, we've been up to 20 or a bit above. And And people in different countries, I think that's probably the thing that tickled me the most Mm -hmm. because I never imagined it. I mean, we called it Cerveza Linguistics de Barcelona because we were imagining doing something in our city, let alone... So to sort of end up having members in in different countries, different Japan continents. was probably. Did we have someone in Japan for a while? Yeah, Mark yeah. Jones was in, in yeah, the yeah. Court for a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, and it makes even more sense now, of course, that uh, we're doing more and more online kind of work. But that's for me a big achievement. Okay, so uh, we're here with Matt and Simon, uh, and I'm James. We're all members of SLB, and um, we're going to have a bit of a chat about uh, why we why we joined, why we joined the co-op, and, and a little bit about what we're doing now. Um, so, Matt, do you want to kick us off? Um, why did you join the co-op? Well, I've been um, a member of the co-op for about a year now, um, although I've been teaching English for more like 10 years. And I joined the co-op because... Previous to that, I had what I considered to be quite a good job in ELT. It was quite reliable. Um, There were monthly salaries, uh, a strong community of practice, training sessions, this kind of thing, what what you don't normally find in in ELT. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, that school went the way of quite a lot of schools, um, and it started reducing its staff size and laying off teachers. So I was one of a group of about three teachers that got laid off at the end of 2018. That was here in Barcelona, right? Right, exactly, yeah. Um, I won't mention the school because, uh, well, for obvious reasons. But I was at a bit of a kind of a a loose end when that happened because it's kind of difficult to go back to what you had before, which was quite these kind of precarious conditions and and not that good contracts. Was that mostly in company training or what what kind of work was that exactly it's going going to um companies often on the other side of town so spending quite a lot of your time traveling doing small classes classes that you're not necessarily that interested in as a teacher because it's often business business english which is fine for some people Mm. it's not my particular interest i do find especially here in barcelona i think uh employers do offer these english classes but they're, they're, they're not taking that seriously i find in a lot of places it's kind of um a chance to kind of switch off from work and i don't know there were some some people took it seriously others it was just a bit of a jolly this is the thing i mean le- learning motivation can be quite low because um it's an hour away from work so um so everyone's just happy to be there really and and not really that dedicated to learning the flip side of that is that it's not that challenging for a teacher you have no real reason to excel in your job because you know that whatever you do even if you go in and just watch a a, a youtube clip for half an hour and then talk about it nobody's going to hold you to account so it's not a real way to progress as a professional yeah so what did what did slb offer you then what was what was that decision to, to 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 reject that so the main thing I think I was looking for was a, a community of practice in which to, to feel a part of. Um, because teaching, or it's kind of a, a strange contradiction that you're in a room with a lot of people for a lot of the time. It's really mm-hmm. quite a lonely job, I think. Um, you don't really connect with people that meaningfully, except when you're kind of in the staff room. And that's the other thing about these kind of business teaching classes, um, business classes, is that you uh, you're spending a lot of time on your own, traveling, and not really interacting with people that often. 
So what I was mostly looking for was a group of kind of like-minded professionals that I could be with um, and, of course, receive um, information about jobs or contracts that might be going, share ideas mm -hmm. and work on projects together because that's what um, I was really missing as a as a, a teacher in a, yeah. In a large yeah, language no, school. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. And maybe we can ask you, Simon, um, how, how, was, how was it for you? Yeah, um, I mean, quite similar to Matt in a certain way. That I've, I've only been part of the cooperative for about a year, um, so it would have been the last academic year that I joined around September. Um, and I just also had started to go freelance at the same time uh, which I'd been kind of thinking about on and off for a few years. I think Matt um, talked about precarity, and I think that was a good motivation for me. Uh, I was kind of, you know, earning not that good money, and maybe some of the work wasn't really very good. So I think I just kind of wanted to see if I could take it to a different level, maybe try to get up my own clients and, and you know, that kind of thing, and be more, I don't know, I guess, more in charge of what... Um, you know, what kind of work I take on and what kind of jobs I can do. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew about the cooperative for a few years because I'd known Alan for a couple of years since uh, being in Barcelona and he'd been talking about it um, for a bit. And I'd actually found the cooperative um, while I was in the UK. Mm -hmm. So I, I was working in Spain um, for three years in uh, kind of the private academy scene and then went home for a bit and then thought, oh, if I'm going to come back, I want to try to find something a bit uh, a different, a different kind of structure. Yeah, because uh, I got a bit burnt uh, from an academy that I first worked at for three years. Not personally, like the whole kind of the whole kind of uh, school went under. Okay, it didn't go under, but it just went in a very kind of negative direction. Right, and I thought oh, I don't really want to go back to that kind of thing. I'm going to try and find something else. Like I googled basically ELT cooperatives to see, uh, you know, what there was around, and that kind of came up. And I was going back to Barcelona, and I thought, oh. I try and check them out. It wasn't for another year, I don't think, until I actually did, because then I kind of coincidentally started working with Alan. So, right. and then another year later, I then kind of took the plunge and kind of went freelance. Okay, so maybe you could say uh, a little bit about that kind of process of becoming autonomo or becoming freelance, um, and has SLB helped you with that? I think the actual process of going autonomo wasn't as bad as I was expecting. I mean, maybe this would be a bit harder now because of COVID, but I just kind of went to the office and, and did all the things. I mean, the people just kind of point you in the right direction and it's actually quite fine. Mm -hmm. But as I kind of started the first kind of semester of being um, autonomous, I think it was really helpful to have a bunch of people that I could ask kind of what seemed very basic questions to and then they get a really good answers. Because, you know, you can kind of look around on the internet, but there's a lot of I don't know, contradictions or you're not really sure if what you're reading is is the best advice or not um so it was really nice you know just asking kind of i don't know silly questions that well might seem silly but are, are quite basic but they are kind of because you're starting off and i think it was really really helpful i mean things from like you know i mean for pricing i think was was kind of quite a good one when yeah. i first started like how much i should be charging like you know is this is this client taking the mic you know are they you know within the rights you know what should i do that kind of thing was also really helpful yeah um, and then obviously you know if people have got work they kind of can pass it around which is was also yeah was really good but i think that just having that kind of ability to kind of ask a group of people something that you weren't really sure about just makes yeah. you feel a lot safer basically. i think that's it isn't it having a group of people that are already quite established um yeah because the majority yeah. of well, it's worth saying the majority of court members are are freelancers um, not everybody, but the majority. So, and people that have been in the city for a long time. I mean, people 
we've got members in other countries and other cities, but the majority are in Barcelona. And mm. having that, I think I found that exactly the same. I benefited a lot by firstly, I'm being able to ask ask those questions and deal with those challenges of becoming freelance. But then also, like you say, just kind of having work passed around. And when people have been here for five or six years or more, they've already got a fairly full timetable. So when they get approached, then it's, yeah, they're able to kind of pass on that work, which is, which is great. What about you, James? You just started talking about yours. What, how, what was your kind of experience joining the cooperative? Yeah, so I, I kind of rejected. So I came to Barcelona to do a master's um, in applied linguistic, well, as, as Matt did the same same course and I I wanted to carry on teaching I wanted to make a profession of it shall we say um, and I looked around at some of the language schools and I was so horrified by the offer like what I would be earning I just couldn't see how I could live off that so I decided pretty quickly that I'd want to go freelance and I joined the co-op pretty soon after that um, and they helped me with that transition so actually now well I've been a member now for four years I suppose something like that and I just just in September of last year, I got a full-time contract at a, like a higher education institution. But even so, I've, I've, I've stayed with the co-op. Um, and the main reason for that, um, I can't benefit in the same ways of, of, of picking up work and, and doing work directly through the co-op. But I just feel that most places, whether it's a language school or a, a university or wherever it might be, although they might provide some kind of training, it's not always kind of really up to date or really what you need it's often uh the training amounts to like complying with policies and making sure you're using the logo on materials and you know not really methodological things so um so for me i mean i've wanted to carry on as a member just because i think i can gain a lot through the training so we've now we're doing these monthly training sessions we put this needs analysis out at the start of the year and then we can work out as members what we need training on. Um, so I think that's great. And that's where I'm going to carry on. So what kind of training sessions have you had before? Um, we've done all sorts. Like I mentioned, different people have kind of different expertise. So I think in the past, well, for my for my master's, my final project was on pronunciation training and like perceptual training. So I I did one on that. Um, we in the, we've had one, well, one with Jeff. Jeff did one on TBLT and Neil's done one as well about kind of developing a syllabus um, through a TBLT approach. Um, and then more recently, I suppose, we have some teachers that have been teaching online for a long time. So that's been of, of real value for other members that are new to this and have had to transition to online teaching. So using Zoom and using different different tools um, and platforms. Yeah, are you going to lead any this year? I think you are, aren't you? Yeah, not a tra- not a training session as such, but um, one of the kind of sidelines I have going on is a is a research project at the UB with an ex uh, tutor of mine and a few other staff, mm-hmm. and they're doing some quite interesting research into um, using mobile devices um, for language learning and kind of uh, chat groups, so like WhatsApp that okay. kind of thing, which actually predates COVID, but it's become kind of more um, acute, I suppose now with the with the current pandemic mm. um so i'll probably getting a session at some point on where the research is um and a ways in which we can use uh, chat groups to kind of facilitate our classroom learning okay but are you still in your studies or is that something that you've just carried on with it's just something that i've carried carried on with um because i'm a strong proponent of the idea of the teacher as a researcher and doing classroom um classroom research accent research that kind of thing yeah, that's great that we can um, we can 
kind of draw from that. And um, and Simon, what are you up to now? You've just moved, haven't you? Yeah, so I'm obviously still part of the cooperative, and I uh, plan on continuing to be part of the cooperative. But yeah, I've just moved uh, cities, so I'm still in Spain, but I'm now in the south of Spain. So I just moved to Andalusia and um, in Ronda, but obviously because of COVID, all my work is online, and I think it will probably stay that way for the foreseeable future. But I think kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier it really helps kind of being part of the community of the cooperative because it doesn't feel like even more so now i think uh it's been exaggerated with covid it's kind of like sitting at your computer at your desk all day uh you do kind of feel very detached from something from anything and i think the cooperative kind of gives you a grounding and i think that uh for me personally and i think other members already know this because we've got a few in other uh other locations other than barcelona but for me it's going to help me feel that i'm still part of something rather than just kind of being a online and then B kind of in a different location. So uh, yeah, it's been really, been really good. It's been really helpful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's that social mm. element to it as well. Yeah. I think um, before COVID came along, it we could combine a training session with a barbecue yeah. or something a bit more uh, enjoyable. You tend to have more people turning up to the training session when you have some kind of some meat offer. <laughs> <laughs> barbecue involved. <laughs> quite pleased when we got name checked by an anonymous marxist blog as well that was quite um, <laughs> quite fun i thought well, we've, we've, we've really arrived at the party now when we're getting kind of written up by and um, we were actually able to also with a bit of basic googling unmask the anonymous blogger as well which we shan't do here but it, that was also quite satisfying <laughs> well just to say that a not so anonymous marxist writer oh, i don't know if he would call himself a pure marxist a guy based in japan is writing a book about how the English language teaching industry intersects with neoliberalism and capitalism and commodification and all these things. And I've been speaking to him, so he's going to include the co-op in his his book. So that's something else, I think. That was a kind of a, uh, an objective from the beginning, that we weren't just going to try and look after ourselves, that we were going to try to promote the cause of improving conditions for people in the language teaching industry in general, which are, depending where you are, more or less shocking. And certainly it was a big shock to me and probably part of the impetus for trying to form the co-op for me was coming from a situation where I'd been employed full-time in Scotland under reasonably decent conditions and came here and had to enter this market that was very cutthroat and kind of race to the bottom. And I think we did try to, from the beginning, say, look, we're, this is about engaging with the wider community, about promoting uh, causes. And we've tried to, through the blog, as opposed, share information about tax issues and things like that for freelancers, share information about employment rights for teachers. Um, we've recently been collaborating with Comisiones Obreras, the biggest, I guess, biggest union for teachers in Spain, as well as other workers. And that's, I think, an achievement. I think we did... Yeah, well, sure, we, we could maybe we could maybe just mention what what that was, wasn't it? it mm-hmm. Yeah, going to... Well, just translating the, the new regulations for our industry, which have been published, um, well, were published last year to minimal fanfare um, and in Spanish and Catalan. So... 
yeah, we, I mean, we didn't do it voluntarily. I mean, we got paid to do it, but we, we um, happily collaborated on translating it so that hopefully people in our industry will know exactly what their rights are, whether or not their, their Spanish is up to the job. Exactly, which is, you know, often a problem. Not just not just the level of Spanish, I think, but it's also about the level of uh, technical Spanish for understanding employment law and well, yeah, translating things. it was quite a lot of fun. Um, I had to get <laughs> my head around a few concepts that I uh, didn't really know, like the lactancia, because I haven't had my, I don't have any kids, unlike you two guys. So I'm sort of this whole law at sound that feels quite antiquated around women being eligible for. X number of minutes of breastfeeding leave per day, which can then be kind of <laughs> sort of saved up and used as a as a kind of extra after maternity leave. That 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 sort of seemed like it was something out of the medieval times or something. <laughs> well, exactly. All these things have become a little bit more um, evened out a little bit. I think compared to when I became a dad, I think George, you, pr- you probably got a lot more. Did you get any breastfeeding leave, George? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I got, um, I don't know how many weeks, I think I got uh, eight weeks of paternity. Um, it's now gone up to 16, so I missed out on that. But um, it was like a, a, like six months later, it went up to 16 weeks. So What else? Achievement, I think also we got a bit of a reputation, I think, a, a positive one, I hope, for, for teacher training. Uh, we run our TBLT course. We've done public workshops in Barcelona that attract people. We'd like to go back to do that again. Yeah, I was quite uh, tickled to hear that people think refer to us as the co-op here, which, you know, and I think generally, as you say, quite positively, and I think you're right that all of these different strands have kind of hopefully given us a, an all right reputation. Maybe not everyone would speak kindly of us, but... Um, yeah, well, what about... What are the challenges to come, do you think, or what? Because, I mean, we're in a bit of a... The co-op isn't necessarily in a precarious position. The industry is in a precarious position, though, in terms of English language teaching. We've seen the closure of one of the biggest and kind of most renowned schools in Barcelona, the International House, not just in Barcelona, but across eastern Spain. Merit as well went down. Merit School went down. The North American Institute went down. The SADE Executive Language Centre went down. So (laughs) a lot of big heads tumbling how do you see english language teaching in this city or in this you know region for the coming years so the demand for english language classes isn't going to change i think people are still going to need business english classes personal private english classes exams classes Um, it's just the fact that some of the biggest suppliers have now gone because they were too I don't know, hefty to survive not being able to fill their classrooms. So when the pandemic, um, can I say, clears up. um, (laughs) It's like a case of acne. (laughs) No. (laughs) When the pandemic finally clears up, um, I think there will be um, a, a lot of opportunities for freelance teachers, especially freelance teachers who were working at schools like Merit, like North American Institute and stuff to, to, to retake their, to take their students back um, if they haven't already done so privately. Um, I think there's going to be a bit of a space for a big language, uh, maybe a medium-sized language school right now to, to, to expand. Um, but more, more to the point, I think um, organizations like the co-op can, can support teachers in maybe, maybe finding that work or, or being a face um, for people to work through as well. Um, that's how I'd see it. 
Um, I think um, one thing I'd say is w- w- this region where, where we are in Barcelona, where you've got a language school, there's a bit of an advantage because you've got a, a population of people who want to learn English. But if you're a language school in the UK and you're reliant on people coming in from out uh, from abroad, then you're, re- mm-hmm. you're in real trouble because because you need, to, you need it's a travel business as much as it is a is a language school business you're you're giving people that sort of experience so it's a quite a different world so if you're living in the UK and listening to this podcast it's a different experience here because you've actually got a population of people who live here that want the classes and they don't have to travel to come to you so that's my sure. that's my that's my I think feeling. I think it has to be said that I mean Neil said we're probably okay as a cooperative but partially because we have very low overheads and we more or less fund ourselves through through our membership fees and you know and the work that we do get but if we had been you know we lost all of our in company classes when the pandemic hit if we had been reliant on that we'd be in as much trouble as as, as the next one yeah, absolutely I think. Um, well so exactly and it's yeah and it has hurt us let's not um, it has been I mean uh, and, and individual members for losing that work and the mm. overall for not having that extra income but luckily there has been other stuff that started you know kind of coming up and I think maybe that's maybe more where our future lies as a kind of cloud based organisation with a presence in Barcelona but maybe with, with uh, you know doing work for different people all over the world I think you know I mean and I think probably everything has been you know on a global level has accelerated on online over the pandemic and i think we're not immune to that no pun intended right <laughs> do, you, do you see us as like a consultative organization helping teachers um creating their own cooperatives in other countries or is that is that too is that too hard because of the chain different laws and, and that sort of thing i think we might no. serve as inspiration don't you think Neil? What I would really like to you're, do, maybe you're pretty we inspiring, Neil. <laughs> I don't know about that. Respiring, maybe. Um, <laughs> I uh, perspiring. Definitely. Uh, what came up in the last kind of we planning meeting that some of us had was the idea of we've talked about doing a conference for for years or doing some kind of anti-conference or some kind of whatever gathering of some kind. Um, Is that a conference for your auntie? <laughs> What? An anti conference. Oh, an anti conference. <laughs> yeah, all your aunties. For, <laughs> no uncles allowed. Um, what I would be interested in doing is trying to start with, start with uh, organizing some kind of get together for cooperatives like us. Um, and there are a few, not only in Barcelona, but across Spain, but I don't think we talk to each other enough or at all, in fact. So it would be, I think, good to, I think, touch base with some like-minded organizations, see what they are doing, they can see what we are doing. And I'm sure we could all learn a lot from that. Wouldn't it be fair to say that there have been some sort of people who've maybe been in touch uh, over the years for a bit of advice and have sort of set up similar type organizations in their countries, or we've kind of been able to sort of sometimes put people in contact with We've definitely done, we've definitely done that, countries. especially in, yeah. the, in the early days as well. Teachers of workers and 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 um, some other sort yeah. of grassroots people in in Germany and and other places. Yeah. We've definitely had that sort of contact. Sure, uh, but if if we've learned anything, it's that you know every kind of local situation is quite different. I think in a way, the co-op was a natural thing coming out of where we were at the time that we were starting. 
and in other places, uh, I think, forming a co-op. I mean, uh, speaking to these people in Japan, um, the idea that a business would do would uh, take on a kind of collective of teachers, I know you don't like that word collective, Alan, but that's how it would be seen, uh, as opposed to a big a big organization with an established name, would it was just a, a, almost like an impossible idea. Whereas I think we're in a situation where Okay, maybe some companies they'd rather have British Council as the person they're dealing with, but a lot of uh, clients would be happy to work with a cooperative like us. And I mean, I don't think even I, unless they take the time to go and look at our page, if they get an email from one of us, you know, they don't. I don't think people see us as a collective of teachers. I mean, we're a we're a group of professionals like any you know. I don't see how we'd look that different to a kind of consultancy company on paper. You know, no, maybe not. But just the fact, yeah, maybe the word cooperative I think would ring alarm bells in some places that it doesn't so much here. Yeah, potentially. Um, mm. So it's just interesting to find out about different attitudes uh, around the world. And obviously, forming a co-op is not going to be the solution for every teacher even if they're in a similar situation to us. But as you say, maybe we can inspire others and show that, you know, none of us were particularly, (laughs) we're not business people. I think, George, you've probably got a much better handle on forming a business than the rest of us. We we were doing it all a bit ad hoc. We've learned a lot. I'm not saying that we're not professional, but I'm just saying it's possible for people not trained in, in necessarily forming a business but who consider themselves to be professionals to to do something like we've done. And if for no other reason than to save money on shared costs, I mean, that alone is probably, you know, we've got our first member of staff, admin staff, who takes care of, of that side of things. Now, we used to have an office space and still have a kind of desk somewhere. Um, we've shared sort of technical um, things. We've shared, like, advice and work. And, I mean, I definitely think that, um, you know, helping people do their taxes, helping people... Even how many people do you think we've helped become self-employed? I mean, probably t- more than ten of of our. You help me. Obviously, I would help me. Yeah. We helped me. <laughs> we also, we helped ourselves. Yeah. But that's that's what it's about, right? It's about helping ourselves and 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 helping other people in the community. And I think it's a it's definitely something I'm really proud of. Um, that that we managed to pull it off. Um, and and still be going now in 2021. So that's it's pretty. It's pretty. Well, I'd yeah, say exactly. that's probably down to Neil because I've probably had a lot of late night conversations in bars about ideas and stuff. But Neil's very good at making ideas into reality. Yeah, so I think it was the mon- the Monday after I first spoke to him, I received an email going, "Right, we need to do this, this, and this in order to do it." So I think if it hadn't been for Neil's kind of tenacity, I'd probably still be. Talking. Oh yeah, I mean, you, you you need ideas, but you also need people who who are really good doers as well. Um, well, yeah, from my point of view. Without Irene, I think we'd have struggled a lot as well. Uh, not only is she a kind of get up and go kind of person and, and get things done kind of person, the fact that you know she she's from here, she was more familiar obviously with the language and the, some of the bureaucratic hurdles than than we were, and she was in a better position to ask the right question to the right person at the right time. My name is Irene Almazan. I'm one of the co-founders in, from SLB. And I'm a safety coordinator in the ports of Barcelona. And 
What does that have to do with SLB? What? <laughs> it's difficult to answer that, though, isn't it? Well, my dear friend Neil McMillan <laughs> is my husband as well. So that's the relation. Although we weren't married at the time we started. We weren't. It was the same year, we though. We were engaged for a long time. Yeah, it was the same year that we got married. The, the, the year that we started the co-op. That's... Wasn't it? Is it? Mm-hmm. 2014. 2014. That's right. So you remember when the SLP Coop was founded <laughs> by Norm Marius? I remember, yeah. I remember the important events in my life. <laughs> um, yes, we're still together. <laughs> oh, we got married in uh, April? May? <laughs> no, 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 Mars. March. March, March. So, in fact, the two things were very close together. Yeah, I think so. Right. I remember that. It was a pretty stressful time. It was. Well, that's the first question, really. What are your memories about the beginning? Uh, the discussions we had to get started, how we got started. What do you remember? Well, actually, the stressful time was more related with the wedding than with the cop. Um, well, I remember I have this memory of us, the four of us, one morning in a coffee shop in the Champla that we made because we needed to sign some papers to start billing for one company. But do you remember any, any of the conversations before that? I mean, why we wanted to start? Or, um... Yeah, no, I remember there was um, something that you always been talking about, uh, a cope and how to to do one with your profession and you were already talking with them with Alan and George about it mm. and this opportunity in this company appeared no and I thought uh, yeah, that would be a An if we had stuck up we could we could do it so yeah. that's why I got excited because um, I could see that your dream could get could become true. Yeah, that's right. And give us a big push at the beginning. And then, so we've talked about how Alan and Christina were left with this paperwork to do and we went on holiday. But now I think about it, I think that was our honeymoon, <laughs> that we went on honeymoon to Guatemala. Yeah. And there was some urgent stuff with the bank that had to be done or we yeah, couldn't yeah, use yeah. the bank account. Yeah, and that's right. We were in Guatemala at that time. How we manage it? You were signing on a paper and a scanner or something like that. And everything was sorted when we got back, and that was us. We we were a, a co-op, and then for the first few years, you were essentially the kind of <laughs> voluntary admin person, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot that time. I enjoyed some of it. I didn't <laughs> others kind of job, but I realized what it means to administrate a, a business. Yeah, and it was not not easy at all. No, no. We managed it. We managed it, and we needed to do a lot of things voluntarily at the beginning because we didn't have the capital. Um, and now, thankfully, we pay an uh, admin person who's on a contract with us, and that's great. But a lot of that, you know, getting to that point was a lot of hours of work, and you put in a lot. Um, thanks to your work, uh, Ashlyn, who does it ad admin now. Uh, had a good basis, you know. 
Yeah, could do it because I was working shifts, isn't it? And I have some free time. And what do you remember about any of the particular big challenges we had early on or the successes we had? What are your memories of? The challenges were to get on the track of all the legal stuff that we need, that we were applying for, the insurance, the registras, the, mm. you know, getting all the little things, legal things in control. Yeah. And the accounts, uh, you know, the, accounts, the first declarations yeah. we did. Yeah, but we did, yeah we did it for ourselves, but we have some help from. Oh, from Mar. Mar, Mar was a, a oh, huge yeah, that's help. Right. So we did get somebody uh, to advise us in accounting. This is before we ended up, of course, contracting a proper accountant. Yes, because we didn't have the money to pay a con uh, a gestor, and all the gestores. So I I was kind to do the job, but nobody will let me know how to do it. Yeah. But Martit, 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 give me the the information that I needed to to do the accounts. So yeah, those first declarations were were done like that, and uh, you know, I think it's a good sign of progress with the co-op that we started from these very, I suppose, amateurish beginnings. We were doing it for the love. We were putting a lot of our own time. Um, we didn't have this knowledge. And it's a good sign that we progressed to the point at which we could start paying for these things properly because otherwise <laughs> we would probably get into trouble for doing something wrong or submitting the wrong paper and having to pay a fine or something like that. Yeah, which I will be completely responsible for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, good. And any other things you remember? Any particular successes? I mean, it was a success getting that first contract. Yeah, no, I think the success was, well, how many years of co-op is now? Seven, this is the seventh year. Seven, and we, almost every year we had some benefit, so I think that's this well, huge success. Yeah, benefit, you mean profit. Profit. Yeah, most years we made a small profit. Um, and the year, and that, the year that we made a, a loss, we managed to recuperate it. Although, because of COVID, we're kind of ex expecting a loss for yeah. this financial year. Who doesn't? Uh, yeah, who isn't, exactly. <laughs> but hopefully we're robust enough that we, we'll, we'll get through that. We we always voted to reinvest it rather than, you know, line our own pockets. Not, not that it was a lot, but, you know, we always did that. So that was good. I'm, I'm proud of what we get uh, and where it's coming from and it was difficult to to leave us I miss you a little bit <laughs> well you're still in the co-op I mean it's just that you're not yeah. active yeah yeah I mean I still miss the the admin staff a little bit oh you do really <laughs> well I was thinking on that these days with the Excel you know Oh yeah, now, you're, now you're an Excel Jedi. <laughs> if I knew that, if you'd known, if you'd known how to do Excel, Excel Jedi mind tricks before, we would would have been in a lot better position. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not too late. But no, I don't think I don't think Ashley needs my help anymore. She masters the Jedi <laughs> admin. Uh, she knows much more than me now. Sure, but wait a minute. I mean, let's just emphasize this. Maybe you're a more of a Jedi level Excel person at the moment. But at the beginning, you did all these. So, uh, so people understand uh, to be freelancer in Spain. Uh, obviously, like anywhere, you need to 
keeping track of your accounts, your expenditure, uh, the amount you bill, um, things that you can deduct from your tax declaration, all of this stuff. And most people, I think, probably uh, hire an accountant or gestor, as we've been saying, to help them with all that. And we figured out ways of doing it ourselves. So one of the things that Irena did was just to create Excels that had cells that linked up to each other that you put your expenditures mm -hmm. in there it calculated things like do you have to do a quarterly declaration or can you just do a yearly declaration these things are really important because having to do a quarterly dec declaration is a, is a lot more um, difficult a lot more complicated and it's less probable that people can do that by themselves so you know don't yeah, yeah but it was not working really well <laughs> But yeah, I could do that much better now. I can tell actually. No, it worked. All these things work. We still use them. We still use these uh, these uh, Excel's. We still use the format of of bill that you created and all these kind of things. Oh really? No, oh, yeah. Mm. Ashlyn's, you know, she's embellished it. She's added things to it, but the basic <laughs> I'm sure uh, basic stuff's the same. Well, I'm glad. What would you like to see happen with the co-op in the future? Oh, I would like to stop working <laughs> because the, the profits of the co-op will be... <laughs> that's what I want. Um, yeah, dream on. <laughs> yeah. But if, not, if that is not possible, uh, I just want to see it still, you know, being what it is and getting more socios or the same ones that we had. But... To maintain. To maintain. And hopefully yeah. progress. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, point of order and shit. Chad, recognize this theme rep to Veronica Avenue, boys. All right, look. We done talk this shit to death, all right? When we gonna vote? Rick, do you have a point? All right, then. All those in favor of going together so we can get the best discount on New York package. Raise up. All right, then. There it is. Looks like we're going to make more money together. Got to say I'm proud of y'all for putting aside petty grievances and putting this thing together. For a cold-ass crew of gangsters, y'all carried it like Republicans and shit. <laughs> y'all remember, man, talk this shit up when you hit them bricks. Best way to get more involved is to tell people about the, the benefits of this here thing. No beefing, no drama, just business. Anybody got problems with anybody else here? We bring it to the group. We ain't got to take it to the streets. All right. Let's do it. What's to come, you think? It's so hard. I mean, I guess what I was getting at with that question about where the industry is going. I mean, one of the things I want to worry about a little bit is, yeah, I agree with you, George, that um, people in our local area, at least, they're still going to want language classes, language services. But with the technology, with the kind of growth of platform ELT, if you like, you know, sort of big online class providers, uh, I think, again, is another bad sign in terms of driving down hourly rates and well and i don't know i mean there's there is there is the when when the market opens globally and you can technically you can work with somebody in the states or japan or india or wherever sure the, then the competition also increases people stick local people stick local i mean they, they're not necessarily going to go right i'm going to go and work with this i'm going to do online classes with a chinese company just because it's cheaper they, they're going to they're going to go to local schools and local teachers because they they 
they uh, they understand those people better and it's easier it's better to meet up somebody in person at the end of the day i think you're right but that's changed you know that i think that probably could have carried on happening over a very longer period of time than will now be the case because now we are all living our lives online we instead of meeting for lunch like we were planning to we're doing this meeting online and i mean yeah I do think that's accelerated those kind of changes, not just in our industry, but in every industry. So, it, you know, I think it feels more uncertain now than, than maybe ever before. I agree. But but I think, I, I mean, it's definitely accelerated things, not necessarily made things worse. I think um, there's a lot of tech coming out at the moment that could it is, is supporting teachers. Um, I, I won't name any in the podcast, but um, I think... I think things um, business-wise have, have improved because, you know, there's less travel, which is reducing emissions and carbon footprint and people actually doing Zoom meetings rather than getting on a plane. That's that's a positive. Um, and it's opened up, like I said, it has opened up a global market, but really, but really I don't think it's going to be an issue for local teachers. I, I, can't, I can't see. You're going to look for the local. That's, that's my... That's my feeling. I might be wrong. And what about the impact of Brexit? Because like we're all um, <laughs> got nothing positive British. to say about that. <laughs> nothing. Um, but certainly, you know, one of the things, one of the features of our earlier experience working in language academies um, or language private language schools was just this steady, steady influx of of uh, new teachers from the UK. Um, being part of the EU, it was easy for people to come here. Uh, there are plenty CELT does and other kinds of introductory courses. I know Alan, you're still you're still a CELTA trainer, but it seems to me that it's not the same kind of people you're training as people from all over the world doing it online. Not, not necessarily yeah, it's certainly who are here. got a lot more diverse um, since it moved online, and I've I've um, had the pleasure to train people from from a lot more of a kind of spread of countries in the world than than had previously been the case. But there's still a lot of um, you know, kind of people like like we were probably when you know when I did a TEFL course at age twenty four or something, and then you know came over here and I'm still here. Um, so I don't begrudge people doing that. But uh, no, I don't. I'm just wondering if it's going to be you know technically harder for them to do. Yeah, that. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, it may well be. Well, I mean, if you're just coming over here to do the course, then that's one thing. I mean, you might want to come yeah. to Barcelona to do the course. But if you want to come to Barcelona and settle, then you're going to have a lot more hoops to jump through if you're British. Um, I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be difficult for teacher training organisations to 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 at least target Brits because I think people are gonna do do less stuff or they'll do it at home. They'll do it in a centre in Bournemouth or whatever, you know, um, because it's it's gonna be easier. Um, yeah. yeah, but I'm not sure because I mean, again, it might come down to price. But if I don't know how the prices vary between providers here and in the UK or whatever, but I don't know. I think that I think I think I'm going to go for the opposite position that you took, George, enough. and say that I think things are going to start sort of opening up, especially maybe in that kind of market, maybe less so in teaching classes. But I think if things carry on the way they're going, it will not be strange to log on to some kind of platform and have a class with a person. Mm that could be anywhere in the world um, and you may be doing that from your home if you can't go and, and do it. In. That makes sense. But I mean, it, like in ter- I was talking specifically in terms of Brexit. Like, I don't think as many Brits are going to come over here to do the TEFL. They might do it yeah. online. Um, but then, you know, they're going to go to like the cheap, the cheap TEFL courses potentially. 
Well, those have always yeah. been there, but I think now it's it's a new it's new ground that one of the kind of um, sort of certified and respected course probably well the probably the most respected one is now mm-hmm. able to be done online. You know, I think that that might yeah that may well make other online online courses suddenly look more attractive than they. Mm, that's true used to be considered I don't know but um, yeah I think there's a lot of change basically and I think um, I don't know I've certainly seen my working life completely change in the last year um, because of everything that's happened so you know we're very lucky that our jobs translate online yeah uh, that's yeah, true yeah. but who knows what we'll be doing this time next year I mean yeah, yeah I wonder from picking up what George said about people st- are still going to want local I-, I wonder if you know having a teacher who comes into your uh, office or, or whatever, it's going to become even more of a kind of privileged thing. Like only the kind of biggest companies are going to have that. And, you know, with new translation technologies and all the rest of it, whether, you know, it's going to become even more of a niche thing. I don't know. I don't want to start a conference in the future to be ELT, but these things are quite interesting. I've seen the argument about like, translation software getting so good that you don't need English teachers, but people don't really learn English or, or other languages just for that. I mean, I'd have a miserable existence here if, if I just translated Spanish with an app um, all day. Of course, but you know, but there are. But we are now in a situation where you can't go into a company. Most companies are having people mm. working from home. If they do that it's just for the workers and they've cut uh, English classes. You know, if the longer this goes on and, you know, let's hope it, it's over soon and we get back to some kind of normality, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I really do think it's been like a paradigm shift and also like force people into either trying online classes or, or teaching them. And I think in a lot of cases, people are actually seeing that it's a lot more feasible and maybe a lot more attractive than than people used to think. So I would, be surprised if uh, if there wasn't some kind of sea shift um, after this. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about the idea that with Brexit you're going to have fewer people coming here um, and just doing you know TEFL for a year? Uh, you know, like the, you know, TEFL is famous for its low barrier to entry. People coming and do it for a year, not really getting qualified, doing eight to ten euro classes, and then going back and, and going to uni or whatever. Do you think that that sort of thing is going to slow down? I think you're right. I think that will, because at the moment, for example, if you want to travel to Spain very shortly, you'll probably have to do two weeks quarantine on your way back. I mean, it's, it's expensive to rent a, a, an apartment for a month. You know, a lot of people come here for that great experience. But because that isn't really an option at the moment, I think other people will be looking at careers that can be done online and will be looking to get trained. So I think... I don't know. I think you could find more people doing it online, which you could then speculate you might start to have a new kind of provider who recruits teachers from wherever they are who've got a CELTA or something and then connects them with with learners, you know, like a, the equivalent of an agency mm-hmm. school in us, but now online. You know, I'm, I don't know, but that could become a sort of new model. And if, if it stays online. Thinking about people coming here now, where are they going to work? <laughs> yeah. Um, not only have we got these schools that have shut down, but a lot of the teachers working there, they were, you know, they weren't here for a year. Teachers, they yeah, were yeah, absolutely. Uh, people who live here and who are now going to need, well, I don't know what the story is at the moment with IH, how far they've progressed. Well, they should all set up cooperatives and try to. Well, <laughs> hope, they hope should, or join ours. Hours, yeah. But, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there maybe are going to be less opportunities uh, from that point. Mm-hmm. Fewer opportunities, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I was going to correct you, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Do you prefer on the spot correction or would you like that delayed, Neil? Would you like to be reminded about it? Self connected, thank you very much. (laughs) So I'm an autonomous learner. from us thank you very much for listening and thank you as well to all the guests we've had today from the SOB cooperative please subscribe to us on your usual podcast provider apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and until next time cheerio now's the time for people to treat everybody equal take the burden off your brother got to live with one another now you don't have to love each other but respect for one another we'll help out without a doctor have a knife, won't hesitate to take your life. So try to live it real cool, or it's losing it to a fool. Cause there's a message in the song that we all hit again. So please join us on the point. All the better way to-